0: Welcome to Chapels from Rosedale Bible College. Thanks for joining our community for weekly chapels recorded on our campus in Rosedale, Ohio. We hope you are challenged and inspired by what you hear. Enjoy. All right, here's your stupid jokes to begin with. Some people are a lot like Slinkies. You're supposed to be figuring out how that is accurate. Some people are a lot like Slinkies. Pretty pointless, but it's still fun to give him a little shove and watch him fall down the stairs. When I turned two, I sort of freaked out because I realized that I had doubled my age in one year, and I thought, if this keeps up, I'll be dead by the time I'm seven. That's a math joke. Uh, I crossed the border into Canada, and they were like, do you have any firearms? And... I leaned in real quiet and said, what do you need? I got food poisoning last week. I'm still trying to figure out who to use it on. It's a twist ending to that one. Final one. Can you you tell that my sense of humor is like just a little off? Right, Like, like the joke about, I bet if you drive off a cliff, You hit the brakes the whole way down. Hey, buddy, better try the emergency brake. That's not funny. You can't joke about that. Kids need encouragement. So whenever they do something good, I like to tell them that they just got lucky. That way they grow up with a good, lucky feeling. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get on with the the real stuff here. Uh, I call this talk Two Trees. Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out from the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the middle, verse 15 of Genesis 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This is the word of the Lord. And then you say, thanks be to God. Sorry, you're not Methodists. And you say, well, neither are you. And I say, I know, but I steal whatever I like from every denomination. It's mine now. Observation one, did God put a bad choice in paradise? God put a bad choice in paradise. Not very homeschooled of him, just pointing that out. God put a bad, not against homeschool, calm down. Just relax. I was public school. I can hardly read, all right? Just relax. God put a bad choice in paradise. Why? I have theories. Observation 2. Yeah, I'm not telling you my theories right now. I would I'm more interested in you asking that question. Why did God put a bad choice in paradise? Every parent's nightmare. Observation two, in the day you eat it, you will surely die, is a warning, not a threat. He doesn't say, in the day that you eat it, I will kill you. That's some people's theology, by the way, because the punishment for cosmic treason is death. Easy, Calvin, relax. It's going to be okay. You just need a milkshake and a nap. You'll feel better when you're done killing my ancestors. Trust me. Hey, buddy, I like Calvin. I know, so do I. In heaven, I'll be like, it's too bad you were misunderstood. You just wanted to tell people about being in Christ, and they obsessed over your interpretation of Romans 9 and Ephesians 1. Sidebar, get back on point. It's a warning, not a threat. On the day you eat of this, it doesn't say, I will kill you, it says, that tree's poisonous. Genesis 3.1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat from any of the trees in the garden? Nah, bro, that ain't what he said. That's a stupid question. Is God trying to starve you guys to death? Uh, No, but note the premise. God's withholding from you. He's keeping all the good stuff for himself. So if you want the good stuff, you'll have to think and act for yourself. Notice how many times I said the word self. Because that's his nature. That's his image. Self. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Question, weren't they already like God? Yes, they were. And they had everything they needed for life and godliness. Is it true that their eyes would be opened if they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Guys, is it true? Is it true? Is it true? Yeah. Yeah. But opened to something harmful. The knowledge of good and evil is not inherently bad. It's just inherently God's. Our role, our job, our designed purpose was to be loved, to be loved, and to love, and to entrust all judgment to God. We would have grown up in knowledge and understanding gradually as our stature in God's love increased... You go, I don't see that. Well, this is Tim talking, and when you have the mic, you get to say what you believe, right? We would have grown in the knowledge and understanding as our stature in love increased, and whatever we would have needed, we would have got from God. Whatever we needed for life and godliness, we would have got out of union with God. But knowledge apart from love is harmful. There's an Orthodox priest named Stephen, and he had a new believer come to his church and say, hey, I noticed the denomination has real deep theology. There's a big old book called The Rudder in the Orthodox Church. I'd like to get a copy and read it so I can understand more fully the theology of the Orthodox faith. And father stephen said why why do you want to read the rudder oh, because i want to grow i want to know i want to understand our theology and he said i have a copy it's in my office on a shelf i try to never read it if i can at all avoid it what yeah why do you want to read the rudder i told you why he said you're not ready for that it's dangerous for you well of course the guy ignored him because that's what you do if you're an american And uh, he got a copy of it, and he read it. And pretty soon he came to church to criticize the priest's theology based on what he was finding in the book. Pretty soon, he had nothing but negative things to say, nothing but critical things to say, and of course he left the faith. Because knowledge apart from love is harmful. Some of us are educated so far beyond our level of spiritual growth that the knowledge is not Growth in love, but it's used for judgment of God, ourselves, others. Adam and Eve were created innocent, not perfect. That's a month of sermons, that one sentence. Adam and Eve were not created perfect, they were created innocent, they made mistakes. But none of those mistakes ever broke fellowship with God. You and I have been restored to innocence in Christ. The New Testament calls it righteousness. But we've been restored to Genesis 2 in Christ, innocent. We're in a state of grace. We're not under law. He's not judging me. And in that state, we grow from one degree of glory to another as we what? Behold the glory of the Lord. In fact, you can't behold the glory of the Lord until you get free from the law. Romans 7, I died to the law so I could marry another, Christ. When I was under the law, the law provoked sin in me, and I became the man of Romans 7 who said, help, I can't do what I want. All I do is what I don't want. Because Romans 7 is not the normal Christian life. It's the life under the law. Romans 8 the normal Christian life. Yeah, sorry, Calvin, you got that wrong too. I love Calvin, by the way. I'm not meaning to pinch his little, little behind tonight. I don't know why. Adam and Eve weren't created perfect. They were created innocent. I said pinches, but I'm sorry. Can't help it. A state of grace. Romans 5, 1 through 5. I put my faith in Jesus. Now I have peace with God and I live in a state of grace. It's my home. And like Paul Simon sang, and I have reason to believe we all will be received in Graceland. Memphis, Tennessee, I'm going to Graceland. Sorry for that. When I was in Columbus, Ohio, hanging out in the cold winter's night, I don't know why I flipped into a southern accent just there. I had this conversation with a warlock in a big black robe with a big old, like, Gandalf cane, and this, <laughs> this dude was like, my father, the devil, told the truth, but your father's a liar. And I was like, uh, I think you got it flipped, bro. <laughs> and he said, um, your father said on the day they ate the fruit, they would Die. And my father said, He didn't talk like that, but it's my story. And my father said, You will not surely die. Who lied? Did they die? Did they die the day they ate the fruit, guys? Something died because Ephesians 2 says that you were dead in transgressions and sins in which you lived. Something died. It wasn't their body. Their innocence died. And with it, their union with the Father. The love for which they were made. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Verse 7 of Genesis 3. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And this had never happened before. This had never happened before. They hid. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. It's every every father's nightmare that your kids be afraid of you. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you? Who told you you were naked? He always knew. He always saw. It didn't matter. Sin didn't change God. He showed up on time as per schedule. It didn't change his view of you. Sin didn't change his view of you. It didn't change his view of you. He showed up on schedule. It changed you. It changed you. It didn't change him. It didn't change what he saw when he looked at you. It didn't change who he saw you as. It didn't change the value he put on you. It changed you. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you to eat? In other words, you shouldn't know that. There's only two ways you would know that. Either you ate the fruit or some other voice told you. Sin didn't change God, it changed us. They suddenly felt a brand new feeling they'd never felt before. And you and I are intimately acquainted with it. It's woven into the fabric of our social experience. It's called shame. There's a whole talk we could, talk, we could talk all about nakedness and clothing and shame and the image and what Christ has done to restore the image and remove the shame and what it means for our identity and all our ego and striving and achievements and career and belongings and clothing and kin and all the stuff, and it's driven to answer the question the shame produced because we no longer know who we are and our value, and our purpose, so we're trying to cover the shame with the fig leaves of all we do, all we say, all we love, all we are. Something changed, they switched from dependence on love, from trust, from God-saturated, God-centered union, to independence. My beliefs, my judgments, my interests, my needs, my wants, my, me. And shame results in hiding and covering and proving and insecurity and anxiety and resentment and distrust and blame shifting and earning and trying to live down what we hope isn't true about us in preemptive strikes, in abandonment issues, and in a lifelong search for significance where nothing is ever enough, ever. This is the birthplace of all sin and religion. All sin and all religion were born here. We usually consider the knowledge of evil negative and the knowledge of good positive. You agree with that? We usually consider the knowledge of evil bad and the knowledge of good positive. But I said this last night, rebellion and religion are two sides of the same coin. The parable of the two lost sons illustrates how the knowledge of both good, older son, And the knowledge of evil, younger son, are flip sides of the same coin. The younger son illustrates the emptiness of the knowledge of evil. I have to get free to find life. And he doesn't find it out there. He finds more death out there. It's empty. It's never enough. And the older son illustrates the emptiness of the knowledge of good. Religion doesn't bring life. You can never be good enough. You can never know. It's never enough. You never fix yourself. You never change yourself. You never get free. Both are equally lost. Both are byproducts of eating from that forbidden fruit. There was no no temple in the garden. There's no sacrifices in the garden, right? There was union with father love. There was union. The father in the story represents the other tree. The tree of life, the other tree, the free gift of life, the gospel. You are just loved. You're just loved. Deal with it. Oops, you didn't do it. <laughs> the story of the two trees in the middle of the garden is... is uh, look, guys, I'm not saying it's not literally true. I'm not saying it's not historically true, but that's not the point. It's much more than literally true. It's mythically true. Do you know what I mean by mythically true? If you say myth, the common person goes, oh, a myth, that's a lie. No, no, no. A myth is a story that has such deep layers of meaning that humans retain the story and tell it in every generation over and over because something about that story has deep, deep life truths in it that apply to everybody. The story of the two trees in the garden is, okay, fine, it's historically true, okay? But it's so much more true than that. It's universally true. It's existentially true. There are two trees in the garden of your life every day. Either union with unearned love or self-referential rightness. Most of us are intensely addicted to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we see through its lenses every day, even as we approach God. One of the most profound questions the Holy Spirit ever asked me (laughs) was, who told you you were naked? I was wearing clothes at the time, so it seemed not to be a literal question. Who told you you were naked? In other words, why are you listening to a condemning voice? Why are you listening to the voice of shame? Why are you judging yourself? Why are you thinking with reference to yourself apart from my mercy? Who gave you the right to think apart from my love and mercy for you? Didn't I tell you the only mirror you are allowed to see yourself through is your reflection in my eyes? Who told you you were naked? Translation, you've been listening to an enemy. Genesis 3.21, the Lord God then made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Garments of skin. And all the church fathers lost their dang minds when they read three, Genesis 3.27, and they said, it's Jesus. Of course it is. Duh. Galatians 3. I said, three, I said Genesis 3, it's 3.21. Galatians 3.27, all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like new clothes. He was stripped naked, humiliated, ashamed, disfigured, The essence of crucifixion is to be publicly humiliated, defaced, shamed. That's the essence. That's what it's for. It's not to physically torture you. It is. It's to destroy your sense of self socially, religiously, in every way. I had a friend and she was trying to help someone who had been sexually molested and the Holy Spirit said, tell her I've been through what they've been through. And she said, that's not theologically correct. When was Jesus ever sexually abused? And he said, tell her. I, tell him I've been through what he's been through. But it's not theologically correct. Yes, it was to be forced against your will in the ways Jesus was. No, I'm not saying the soldiers had sexual encounters with Jesus, but that is sexual abuse. The shame of it, the overpowering I don't I I'm sorry guys, I don't have the words for you tonight. But he took on that shame. He was stripped of his glory and put on our shame so that we could be stripped of our shame and put on a glory again. So then Colossians 2 says that we appear before, we're we're here in the presence of God, unashamed, not one spot, not one blemish. And he did that. He did that. No fear, no condemnation. Bold. We belong here now. We're back in Genesis 2. Christ is the clothing God provides to cover our shame and restore our innocence. Friends, you wake up in Genesis 2. You go to bed in Genesis 2. You live in Genesis 2 because you are in Christ. The question is, do you know it? Has your mind been renewed to it? Is your heart learning to receive what he did? Are you walking in the reality that you are not in that tree? God isn't the one pointing out your shame. He's the one removing it. You know, we quote this like we know it or something. It's John 3:16 that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to So maybe he's not holding people's sins against them. It doesn't help when people hold up signs that tell them how much God's angry and got to kill them. Go home, you're not helping. Your ministry will be to shut up till you get right, right? Yes, please, God, please, God. One of my, a gentleman who I really like came to our church and spoke. He was in the airport one day walking along, and these people stopped him to minister the gospel to him. And he said, I got to catch a plane. I don't really have time, but I just want to say, I thank you so much for what you're doing. I'm so glad you're out here sharing Jesus with people. Well, then they proceeded To not share Jesus with him, but to share a whole lot of religious nonsense with him about you have to do it this way and that way, and you're wrong. And they basically took about five seconds before they decided that he was lost, going to hell, one of the godliest men I know, and that he needs to get right and do the King James only thing and baptize the right way and all this stuff, and that he's a false teacher and a heretic, and his ministry is harming people. And he said, guys, I really don't have time to argue with you, but I want to cry over you. You've made my heart so sad, and I changed my mind. I said, I was glad you're out here doing this, but I pray you never share this with a single soul again until you repent and get right with the Lord because you're misrepresenting him in such a disgusting way that I'm grieved for you. Oh, I just love Dan so much. Because God's not the one condemning. Right? Wow, the ministry of condemnation, uh, that's not our ministry. Yeah, we call people to repentance. Yeah, turn away from all that stuff that you're doing that's killing you. Come home and drink from love and life. That's repentance. Not grovel in pain in the hopes that it'll be, maybe it'll be enough. Uh, it won't be enough. Let Jesus change you. Don't change you. You just come here. Just let him do the changing you. You just come here all messed up. Like, like that's He wants you messed up. He wants you real bad. How's that for theology? He wants me real bad. There, theology 101. He actually gets lonely for me. One night he woke me up. I'm laying in bed, and he says, Hey, Tim, thank you for bringing my son back to me. One of my good friends. I took him places and poured life into him and just had fun. Kind of, hey, you want to go do this? Yeah, let's go do that. He said, he's talking to me again like we used to talk. I've missed him so much. And I thought, I'm laying in bed going, "Uh, is the God of the universe thanking me for something? What? That isn't normal. And then look at his heart. So I just laid there and made a little puddle on my pillowcase or on the side of that way. But then it gets in a little little pond on this side of your nostril and it kind of stays there and then you blink it out. And then I told my friend, and then he cried, his own little puddles. When we're rooted in the wrong tree, it's not fun. We become judgmental. Uh, Many years ago, I'm very happy to report this. I haven't heard this from my wife in many years. Carrie said, You know, Tim, when you come out of your prayer closet, you are such a jerk. All you see is what's wrong. What's wrong with the kids? What's wrong with the with the world? What's wrong with the house? What's left undone to be cleaned? I, that was like fruit check, you know. Uh oh, pulled the dipstick out of the engine. Oh, there's no oil in here. That's probably a big deal. Yeah. After you come out of your prayer time, don't you? Isn't that the opposite of what you hope to hear? You know, the more you pray, the meaner you get. I think I'm doing it wrong <laughs> I figured that out praying more does doesn't help I mean it I prayed harder I gave myself a hernia praying it's not a lie it's a true story and I called my friend Doc Mass and I said oh, it hurts when I cough laughs sneeze, vigorously do anything and he goes when did that start and I was like I was praying real hard and he's like yeah do less of that do less of that And I'm like, well, you're about as good of a doctor as my dad. Dad, it hurts when I do this. Well, stop doing that. Like, that's great, Dad. That's that's like your sandwich joke. Hey, make me a sandwich. Poof, you're a sandwich. (laughs) Very useful. Glad you went all the years of school to get that for me. But when my zeal is rooted in trying to cover what I fear might be true about me by trying to become and do what I hope I could be or maybe I am, I want to be, I'm in the wrong tree. When my goal is being right, let me slow down, because I feel like some of you are still thinking, he's a weird dude. I don't know what he's talking about, this God thing. I'm still chuckling about that other thing he said about his dad. Okay. When my goal is being right, I have eyes to see what's wrong in the world, in myself, in other people, by the way, this is Pharisee 101. My goal is to be right. I don't want to be around you. Can you go to another church? You can, cause you hate me. Cool. That was like dodging a bullet. <laughs> if there were more pastors in here, there would have been laughter on that point right there. They would have been like, I <laughs> Would have been like, "Yeah, I was faithful for the season. I had him, but I was blessed when it was over." When I'm just trying to be right, I have eyes to see what's wrong. And then I try to fix the world. Oh, it would just save us from people trying to fix the world from this heart. This heart ain't going to fix the world. This heart is going to be more of a problem. Oh, my goodness. That's, here's the energy I'm talking about. I had my prayer time. Why aren't you having your prayer time? I cleaned up my stuff. Why didn't you clean up your stuff? I kicked that back habit in like two weeks. You've been saved three years. I don't understand what's wrong with you. I showed up for the thing that I didn't want to show up for, but I did because of duty. Why didn't you show up for the thing? Because you're too free and it makes me sick. I do all this. Why shouldn't you do all this? Meanwhile... Luke 15, 1 and 2 says, Now notorious sinners gathered around Jesus because they loved to hear what he had to say. Bro, what? Notorious sin? This made the scribes and teachers of the law angry. I'm just quoting Bible here. Just take Luke 15, 1 and 2, and sit with it for a couple of days and go, Jesus is weird, dude. People who hated church seem to love Jesus. That's fascinating because I don't think sinners want to be around self-righteous, judgmental, condemning, legalistic people. Sinners don't. But you know what they like? They like when people like them. They love when people love them. And they're surprised when people believe in them. Jesus would look at you and he'd see things in you that you don't see in you. He sees right past what you've become to who you always have been. Because the image of God in you is so strong, you haven't sinned it all away yet. And it's still under there, just waiting to be revealed, uncovered. Jesus is the embodiment of love in the flesh because he never ate from the tree. He doesn't see what you and I see, he always has eyes to see what's right with the world. He always has eyes to see what's right with the most vile sinner. Because Titus says to the pure, what? All things are. But to the defiled, nothing's pure. Everything's messed up. Which is why the dude at church who has the lust problem tells me I need to make stronger rules for the girls so that they'll stop making him lust. And I go, I hadn't noticed the girls dressing incorrectly. Jesus can see what you and I can't see because he never ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He sees what the Father sees. The Father shows up on schedule, says, who told you you were naked? Jesus shows up as the manifestation of the Father. So sinners want to be around him. He's not fooled about you and I like we are. He's not confused about who you are. He knows exactly who you are. You're a child meant to be loved. You are Not a problem to be fixed. You are not a problem to be fixed. He's not here to fix you. He's here to love you. You're not a problem to be fixed. You're a child of God to be loved. And love covers over a multitude of sins. Love restores the image. Love takes off the shame. And in his love, suddenly sinners fall out of love with what could never satisfy and in love with that which we were always intended for. And guess who changes? The one under law? Nope. Grace. Grace that looks like, oh, no, we're going to take them out from under law, and then they're going to do whatever they want. It's going to be horrible. Law, which promises we're going to be disciplined and diligent, and we're going to spank them, and we're going to pay each other 20 bucks when we don't read our chapter of Galatians, and we're going to go for it and be accountable. All that self-control just makes you want to sin even more as soon as the thing's over. But love produces love, and the next thing you know, it's been four years since we even thought about doing that thing, because we're not sin-focused. We're answer-conscious, not problem-conscious. We're living in the faith. We're not living in the, ah! Paul was, he called himself the worst sinner, and then he said, I was the worst sinner. I used to persecute the church. Back when I was trying so hard to fix the world, using the law, I was trying to be right, and I was trying to do right, and I was trying to make others get right. Interesting how being really, really hardworking at being and doing right makes you like a murderer. And then he encountered Jesus at his lowest point, and the things that he thought were his virtues were actually his sins But God loved him at his lowest point. And that'll have a little effect on you. Oh, everything I think is stupid. Hmm, you love me anyway? And so then his mission changed. He switched scripts. He became convinced we should no longer regard anyone from a human point of view now that Christ has died. Christ Christ died for all which means I have a totally different mission. Redeeming love. If he can save me, then what? He can save anyone. Because you're just a junior varsity sinner compared to me. I'm pro. I went pro at sinning. If that's what he gave, sorry, again, there's the imaginary cross in my mind as though I were at home. Uh, On my left is a large cross. If that's what he gave, then that's the measure of your worth, no matter what I think when I look at you with human lenses. He used to be motivated by being right, seeing what's wrong with others, and then something changed. He became motivated by love, seeing the value In others. And those are the two options. Those are the two trees. Those are the two trees that are present in your life every single day of your life. When you wake up, there's a garden called your life, and you're in it. And there's two trees, two paths right, love, righteousness from Jesus as a gift. Or righteousness from rightness. Oh, being right, being right. There is a right way to do things. There's a right way to do things. Don't don't walk. Run from this mindset. And by the way, these are the same people who are like, it's Thursday, so now I'm going to do an Instagram post to point out all the false teachers in the world who are misrepresenting Jesus. You're welcome. Run, flee. You're meant to grow up in love. And become experts in love, not become experts in judging. You're rooted in the wrong tree. You came to church and became more twice the son of hell. Flee. Run. Stop it. You're lost. His name is on your lips, but your life is going the wrong direction. The right way to do it. What's the right way to educate the child? Homeschool, Christian school, public school, Montessori? What's the right thing to do with alcohol? Drink at home? Drink only with strong Christians? Never drink? Do whatever I want just don't tell Pastor Tim what I do? Don't drink at all? What's the right way to order your marriage? What's the right book to order to talk about marriage? What's the right way for a Christian to dress? What's the right thing to believe about the end times? What's the right way for a Christian to vote? Here's a guide. It'll tell you the right way. What's the right way to be baptized? Triple dunk backwards baptized three times in the Jordan River? No? Oh, you're not saved. What's the right kind of church meows Zach? What's the right denomination? This is the only truth. Everyone else is a heretic. What's the right Bible translation? The King James Version? That's what Jesus used. Bro. I would die for the King James Bible. After my blood pressure calms, I would like to inform you, no one's gonna kill you because it's that stupid. What's the right way? And the more right we become, the less loving we become. I'm not even against the King James Bible, by the way. I'm not against being triple dunked backwards, baptized in the Jordan River. That's fine. That sounds cool to me. I got a little of violet anointing oil that was literally from olives, from the Mount of Olives, and I doubt it's more anointed, but it's kind of cool. There's a problem, though, when it becomes the right way to do it. You know? That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The more right we become, the less loving. It's like, Lord, save us from ourselves. We have become the problem. What does love say? Love says, it depends. It depends. Paul's like, ah, eh, you know, uh, you got Jesus. You got the Holy Spirit. I'm pretty sure you're fine. I'm going to leave. Go preach to other places. God's got you. I entrust you to the grace of God, and you'll figure it out. And if you disagree with each other, accept each other, because Jesus has accepted all of you. You don't agree? Well, you're wrong. Wow, are you blown away yet by Paul and his faith in the power of the gospel to change lives so that he does not have to micromanage them using guilt and shame? Blown away I am. Blown away I am. That was a little Yoda, but I couldn't figure out how to do it right, and that's such a short notice. It depends. It depends. What's the right way to educate the child? Uh, It depends. It depends on the child. It depends on the family. It depends on what schools are available. It depends on what's happening currently in your life. It depends. There is no right way. There are thousands of right and wrong ways, but love is always the way because Jesus was the original Mandalorian. This is the way. What's the right way to conduct your marriage? It depends. It depends on the spouses. It depends on your personal histories. It depends on tons of factors. But love is always the way. So live in love. I tell people who are married who are going through problems, uh, instead of me telling you how it should be, I'm going to tell you this. You seem to think that because you're doing it the right way and they're doing it the wrong way, they need to change. But here's what I would like to tell you. Marriage is like dancing. I don't care how right you're dancing. If you're dancing alone, you're not dancing correctly. Go dance wrong with them. Figure it out. What's the right way to vote? What's the right way to pray, to witness, to fast, to sing, to budget, to read the Bible? It depends. You're not me. I'm not you. I don't have your calling. I don't have your conscience. I don't have your life. I don't have your personality. I don't know. Can the Lord lead you differently than me? Yes. Will he? Absolutely he will. You follow your conscience. So I have to entrust you to Jesus. You have to entrust me to Jesus. And both of us follow our conscience, our best understanding of the Bible and the leading of the Holy Spirit, and not be bound by your conscience or judge you for having a different conscience than me. You go, oh my goodness, that's chaos. No, that's Christianity. If we make mistakes, and we all inevitably do, well, then we, then we love. We love well. If we love well, but make a bunch of mistakes, we'll still get a well-done, good and faithful servant from Jesus. But if we get it all right, but we miss love, we'll just be one of the people in hell who are able to quote a lot of Bible from memory. I think there's probably an award in hell for that. Most Bible verses memorized. So back in 2015... The Lord said, there were two trees I was walking out of the bathroom. Not particularly spiritual in the moment that it happened, right? Just being a dude. Just a bunch of dudes being bros. By the way, that's one of my favorite little phrases. Whenever guys are doing something particularly dude broy, then I think that. Uh, just, but look at us, man. Just a couple of dudes being bros. <laughs> uh, I just like that. Back in 2015, I wasn't praying. I wasn't uh, singing. I wasn't doing anything spiritual. I was just walking out of the bathroom, and the Holy Spirit said there were two trees in the garden and they represent two covenants. And I said, nah, that doesn't sound right to me. If that's true, how's come I never heard a sermon about it? How's come I never read a book about it? If that's true, how's come they never told us about that in seminary? Hmm? Huh? I never heard one lecture about it. Doesn't sound right to me. That sounds weird. But the more I thought about it, the more profound it started to feel. It was like, I think there's something here. I think this could be Right. And then I discovered Rick Joyner's book, There Were Two Trees in the Garden. And I was like, uh-oh. And then I discovered Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book on ethics, is a rather large book, and in the introduction he says, this is what he says in his introduction to the book Ethics. He says, The knowledge of good and evil are the exclusive property of God, but having transgressed, humans became self-referential. The study of ethics is therefore somewhat dangerous. What? I said, hey, that's what I was thinking. Then I discovered Greg Boyd's book, Repenting of Religion, and he wrote his book because of something that happened to him at the mall, as many of you know. The mall is a hazardous and difficult alien foreign terrain for men. At least I think so. And so to be dragged to the mall is a difficult trial for any husband. And as Greg sat on the bench waiting for his wife to come out of a store, he realized that as he just watched people walking past him, he was doing what humans do inadvertently, thoughtlessly, with no premeditation. He was judging everyone. You know how it do be that way. We just do. So somebody walks past, "Hmm, lay off the burgers. Somebody else walks past, oh, what a sweet little couple. They must be great parents. I bet they know Jesus. Another person walks past, oh, no, that couple shouldn't be allowed to have kids. It's too bad they do. Over there, oh, that lady, she needs to take it easy on the makeup. And then over there, oh, sweetheart, cover up. You're going to attract the wrong kind of attention. And then the Lord asks, Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that, Greg? And he thought about that question. Why am I doing that? Why am I judging everyone with no need to? I just am. Why am I doing this? And he realized that he must be deriving some kind of sense of um, self-affirmation out of seeing what's wrong with others. Like, somehow, it morally affirms me that I can at least recognize how things should be. And he said, Lord, how should I be thinking about all this? And Jesus said, I told you to bless everyone, not judge everyone. So Greg sits there and says, okay, I can try that. So as as people are walking by, he's just at the mall, just chilling, just waiting. He starts to actively speak blessing and life over each person he sees. No matter what his biases were, his a priori assumptions, his external evaluations, his snap judgments, he decides instead, I'm going to bless them. I'm going to pray blessings over them, Father. You love them. Good things. I pray good things. I pray they life, life, abundance, come alive, be loved, receive the love of the Father. And something began to happen in his heart. Something shifted in his heart. He began, as he chose to say those things, his heart began to see them differently. I'm going to finish with this. Yeah, the band can come up. A few years ago, I wrote a song. And here's the lyrics to the song. The song's called, God, You Love Me. And the chorus is quite simple. God, you love me, I receive. Of course, I layered like five harmony parts on it. You know what I mean? So it's, God, you love Here's the main part. God, you love me, I receive. But then over that, it's like all these different harmony parts to, you know, keep it from feeling too boring. Here's the verses. First, we learn the Father, and then we learn ourselves. Because His love is the foundation of us loving someone else. All of us were selfish defend, distrust, and blame, but grace sees past the worst in us, and love removes the shame. God, you love me, I receive. Second verse, rooted in the wrong tree, experts in right and wrong, but Jesus took our worst to bring us home where we belong. We set out seeking knowledge, but ended up with hardened hearts. Like helpless newborn babies, we've arrived back at the start. God, you love me, I receive. Unlearning what life taught us, you're renaming every scar. No child is loved for doing. We're loved for who we are. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please share so others can benefit from it as well. And be sure to check out our other podcasts at rosedale.edu podcasts.